0: This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and February is Black History Month, and the theme of this year's Black History Month is Africans and the Arts. So today, we are having a celebration of Black contribution to the arts, and also the lack of representation that has been far more common throughout this country's history. We have a roundtable discussion today with Dr. Gregory Carlson from Concordia College, a professor in the Communication Studies and Theater Arts Program and director of the Film Studies Program. Dr. Carlson, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We also have a Prairie Public television producer and our film critic, Madeline. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Ashley. And we have Zippo Matalda. She is a filmmaker who does a lot of work also in the music world and does a great deal of work producing. Zippo, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Zippo, you are the new person here. Matt and Greg have uh, had a lot of airtime on Main Street. So we'll start uh, a little bit with you and about your background. You have um, a bachelor's degree in music composition from Seattle Pacific University. And most of the work that I saw uh, deals a little bit more heavily in music. So talk about your entree into the world of music and then how it evolved into film. Sure.
2: So um, as an undergrad at Seattle Pacific, I was very much um, involved with the orchestra. I was involved with the Wind Symphony. I did a lot of instrumental work, and I also was just really interested in pursuing musical theater. Um, and the program there was more centered on um, classical music. So I was a little bit of a, <laughs> a black sheep in the in the department. Um, and then I just kind of... Um, as I progressed and I grew and I defined who I wanted to be as an artist and what I wanted to do, uh, I decided to, um, I guess, try to learn the production process on my own. Mm. Um, I started doing at-home recording um, and uh, just learning about how to use production tools, softwares, and things like that. And then um, eventually, it just sort of evolved to me building my own like tracks. So, um, if you for every song, you know, you have the um, producer who builds the track in the um, audio software and i just learned how to do that on my own and then after that it kind of continued to spiral into me just kind of like producing um, my own work and then eventually um, trying to bring that into a full realization through film um, and music videos specifically, and, and as I did that process, I decided, you know, I have a very strong theater background, so I just kind of started adding um, a little bit more acting into the music videos, and that sort of spiraled into more interest in <laughs> filmmaking, so it's kind of just been kind of like a very natural,
0: like, snowball, mm-hmm. if you think of it that way. Sure, so you didn't necessarily grow up seeing uh, someone on in the movies and then saying, this is what I need to do.
2: I think it's, um, as an artist, I think you collectively have those, you know, people that you you watch and you grow up and you are interested in what they do, but the way it becomes, you know, your path is Mm -hmm. very unique. So I think it's always kind of been... You know, it's like that love that I never knew I had, you know, and you kind of like discover it as you grow. So I think, you know, film has always been something, and spe- specifically acting, has always been something that I've been passionate about. Um, so I think um, filmmaking was just a natural, again, something that just naturally came yeah. eventually. <laughs>
0: yeah there there is this saying you know you cannot be what you cannot see, and it is so important for representation um was there a film or or a certain genre of films or even one particular actor or actress um or or musician perhaps in this case that was particularly meaningful for inspiring your career path um I would say off the
2: top of my head um Film-wise, I would say I've always been um, inspired by Angela Bassett, mm. um, someone that my mother has actually always been <laughs> inspired by, too. And just um, as I've uh, matured and been able to, like, really watch her, um, I guess, her history and just see all the films that she's done and um, her repertoire, I've just become more, you know, an- amazed by her level of, um, I guess, talent and The way that she portrays characters so, Mm. you know, just from a very profound understanding of the character. And I just really admire her work as a whole, especially when it came. I know we'll talk about this later, but in Black Panther, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's just it's its those are the people that, you know, if I think about um, definitely Denzel Washington. These Mm. are names that I grew up hearing in my house every day. So it's like, you know, you just kind of naturally know who those people are. Um, Household names, I guess you'd say. Um, and yeah, there's a few others I could think of. I I would say music wise, I've always been inspired by the Beyonce, (laughs) the one and only. Um, and I've also been inspired by many, I guess, many different genres of music. So it just Mm. kind of all comes together that way.
3: (laughs) And Zippo, Spike Lee also, you mentioned beforehand, big, big influence on you as well.
2: Very much so. He's always kind of like the person who we viewed similar to, like, Michael Jackson. Like, this is Mm. the person who's, like, you know, everyone just, you know, gravitates towards their work, and he was the Steven Spielberg in my mind. Mm. You know, just kind of, like, his level of just, you know, depth of understanding of um, cultural, like, I guess, experiences of African Americans. Um, And also, you know, just the gravity of his work. I think it's just always been something – you just
0: know his name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lee, is,
1: Lee, to me, is so uh, transcendent. Um, for many years, I've I've asked the question, why has no American filmmaker uh, remade Kurosawa's High and Low? And just this last month, <laughs> Spike Lee announced that he will be reteaming with Denzel Washington to make right. an American mm-hmm. Hollywood studio release version of a film that, when you see it, you think, this, this feels like a a, a gripping Hollywood-style thriller.
0: <laughs> Greg, you're the film historian in particular in, in this group, although, Matt, you certainly have a, a great deal of film knowledge as well. I'm really interested in the names that um, Zippo was throwing out there and that it—yeah, of course, Denzel Washington, Angela Bassett, and, and, and being able to have common household names— That has not been the case uh, historically. Let's talk about when we maybe even first Mm. got to a tipping point of when... You could yeah. really be taking this seriously. It wasn't a bunch of white people in sure. blackface.
1: Well, um, you know, yeah, the issue of blackface is something that, you know, Matt, oh, we'll Matt can touch that. on. <laughs> we can, you know, uh, we can get to. But, it's horrifying so, to watch now if you look at those old movies. Right. Go, go ahead, Greg. No, I was just going to say that, you know, the it's the, the work of pioneering film historians and theorists um, and cultural critics uh, like Donald Bogle, you know, who um, wrote several of the, the works that um, – film students would be exposed to kind of to get an understanding of uh, just how difficult the trajectory of representation was for actors once the silent era, you know, there was virtually um, outside of what are often referred to as race films, um, that would be, you Mm. know, films, black films made by black filmmakers for black audiences sometimes shown as like uh, on the road um, you might show it at a church or you might show it at a, a fair um, you, you know you, you when you think about the transition into into sound how many times have we we all seen the clip of Al Jolson uh, in the jazz singer and sort you ain't of seen nothing yet you't right. seen nothing yet and you kind of overlook um, uh, you know certainly the overculture has has overlooked the um, the the fact that that is a, you know, a black face representation of minstrelsy. Um, one of my favorite movies is, is Spike Lee's Bamboozled, Bamboozled which yep. does as good a job as any in um, deconstructing the history of minstrelsy. And... Um, Set you know, our
0: listeners up with a little bit better mm-hmm. definition of
1: Yeah, that. sure. It would be, you know, for, for many... Um, white Americans, the minstrel show would be the first encounter they had with uh, the, the art and music and performance of um, African-Americans, uh, former slaves. And so um, the perpetuation of negative stereotypes uh, w- was ingrained during the minstrel show era, where in fact, many performers would be uh, wh- you know, white performers putting uh, you know, burnt cork, on their face and and uh, you know and wigs on their heads, and so it it, it gave rise to you know it's the the t- the title of one of Bogle's books. In fact, uh, is a, a kind of a litany of the famous stereotypes that came out of the minstrel show. So so Lee did an incredible job in bamboozle deconstructing this idea. The the film ends with a absolutely you know heart wrenching montage showing how we've taken for granted in our culture. Uh, dozens upon dozens of clips from cartoons and TV shows and mm-hmm. uh, you know familiar characters that perpetuate negative stereotypes but even this year Matt and I saw American fiction and, uh, you know, that uh, uses some of the same ideas that Spike Lee was playing with in the film Bamboozled, right. which and, and is high on my list of recommendations. here
0: of that film, if I'm not mistaken, is there's a black writer who can't get taken seriously because right. he sounds too white. <laughs> he doesn't sound black enough, right?
3: Right. And then he writes, According to he the decides, white decides to write mindset. a book using, you know, language or uh how how white Americans would think mm-hmm. people would talk, or black Black Americans would talk, and it's it's and all of a sudden his book sells,
0: yeah. And
3: he just wants to be an author and not a black author. So it's a it's an interesting film. It's up for quite a few Oscars. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of follows what Greg was saying with the bamboozled, and and I don't know if Zippo, if you've seen Bamboozled, the Spike Lee film, it's really like Greg said, it it really kind of tries to get at the, the history of minstrel shows and things mm. like that and and uh, representation but you know greg mentioned blackface and uh T- turner classic movies has an amazing segment it's like seven or eight minutes long on the history of blackface and when you watch it now you're like how did this ever how is this ever allowed it's so it's so offensive i don't know if you've seen any of those old films like the jazz singer things like that, I've Zippo. I've seen things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's horrifying, isn't it? How do you feel when you see Al Jolson in Wonder Bar or the jazz singer singing with blackface on?
2: I mean, um, I think it's, for me, when I see um, any type of minstrel um, depiction or blackface, I always think of it as, you know, something that we need to just be aware of. I think you have to know exactly what... where we came from what yeah what 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 it was like at that time I think it is um, difficult to digest Um, and it's also just you know trying to find a way you know to allow ourselves to know that history but at the same time you know try to promote what we believe you know is important, so I wouldn't say it's it's something that I like to you know <laughs> like to think <laughs> about too often. But I do um, I do understand the value of you know having those records and 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 what that time frame was like.
3: And even big performers like Fred Astaire, you know, he does this Bill Bojangles Robinson tribute mm-hmm. uh, number in Swing Time, the Astaire Rogers movie, and it's a great movie. But in the middle of the movie, there he is in blackface. And I'm not suggesting Fred Astaire wasn't – didn't truly admire Bill Robinson because he did. But I think as he probably grew older, he may have regretted doing that number. Mm-hmm. Um, Judy Garland put blackface on in a musical. Mickey Rooney did it. It was very typical. Uh, there's, a, there's a sequence in Wonderbar, just It goes on for like eight or nine minutes of Al Jolson going up to heaven. He has blackface on and it's kind of this weird awful depiction of what white people think black heaven would be in 1934 and he gets oh up boy. to heaven there's <laughs> pork chops growing on trees there's chickens coming out of the oven there's watermelon it is it's as how I'm describing it is even yeah. worse when you see it and this stuff was was acceptable up up until about world war 2 and then you see you see the end of it
2: Yeah, I think that just reiterates the importance um, of what we portray, especially coming out of Hollywood. You know, it's like there's a huge influence that films have on culture and there's a huge responsibility there. So I believe that, you know, that just needs to be continued, like to be looked at in our current you time frame as well. You know, how are we portraying one another in a grand scale?
0: Mm hmm. That is Zippo Matalda. She is a filmmaker, and she is also active with the Fargo-Moorhead Opera. We're also in conversation today with Matt O'Lean, who is, of course, our film reviewer, and Dr. Gregory Carlson, the director of the Film Studies Program at Concordia College. We're having a roundtable discussion today for Black History Month on this year's theme, Africans and the Arts. Um. Zippo, this is a a little bit outside the scope uh, of directly filmmaking, but I feel like for so long, the conversation about race and race relations, uh, the, the onus has been on the marginalized voice to explain what racism is and and how racism works and and how it can be harmful to mental, spiritual, physical, uh, even on a genetic level uh, to the health here. Um, Do you feel like that conversation is evolving one way or the other?
2: I definitely do. I think it's been an Huge part of my experience, just, you know, being an African-American woman and having um, just, you know, have to navigate what that um, reality is with, you know, my own friends. You know, it's like you have this other, um, I guess, identity where you have to always be the person to educate Mm. so you spend all your mental energy your emotional labor doing this work it is emotional labor and I always give credit to the the, the people that I know who rather than coming to ask me you know can you explain to me why you know the history of race in America they'll go and grab books they'll go and read they'll go and you know do their research and you know make it you know an effort to try to you know become you know adequate in their own way you know and also just advocating for our own mental health in that sense of just like you know it it takes a lot to just always you know have to you know explain or to you know educate and you know it's not your responsibility you know to do that whether you know you know you're african american or whatever ethnicity you are you're um you know you do that out of hope that you can help somebody but it's also just you know important to understand it is not your job <laughs> to educate your yeah. friends and to like, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I wonder too, I was having a conversation with a friend recently about the author, um, Margaret Atwood. And he said, oh, that's my favorite female author. And I sort of went, I, I kind of cringed <laughs> at that. And maybe he just has another author uh, that he likes better. But I wonder, um, if this is a valid question even, and and feel free to, to be blunt here, but when we say things like, this is a black filmmaker, does that open more doors or, or close more doors, do you think?
2: Um, I think it's one of those things where people ask, you know, is it better to just, you know, not necessarily like identify somebody as a black person? Or, you know, is it Better to say, yeah, is this is a black filmmaker. I think it's more important to allow people to, I, I always like to, to allow people to identify themselves, how they prefer mm. to be identified. So, you know, I always, you know, ask, even if I'm asking someone's ethnicity, I always start with, you know, asking them you know i always say what is your background or you know i say it in that way sometimes people get a little candid and they say what are you <laughs> yeah. and that's always kind of like you know on the on the verge of like being a little like eh, what breed <laughs> are you it's it's kind oh. of it's difficult we're to you know uh uh-huh. it's difficult to especially in america we have that tendency to not really want to offend you know we're always trying to be politically correct so sure. i would say um i would always you know just ask people how they want to be identified because sometimes people will say you know I don't see myself as you know black I see Mm -hmm. myself as you know a mixed race you know filmmaker you know so it's always good to be I think just sensitive in that sense
0: how do you describe yourself
2: um I would just always you know I'm very lenient (laughs) whenever somebody some people say you know black or somebody will say African-American, you know, I'm, you know, African, sometimes I have trouble just knowing what to call myself. (laughs) So I would, I would just, you know, be fine with anybody saying, you know, I, I prefer the term maybe like BIPOC, you know, or something or, you know, something, I I don't mind acronyms. I'm like, yeah, I'm BIPOC, you know, it's simple, but, um, yeah, or I'll answer to black or black filmmaker, (laughs) not
0: black, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) but yeah. Greg, I want to talk to you about the birth of a nation. And this is something that, as I understand it, um, Spike Lee is still talking about when he teaches uh, filmmaking. And I have never seen this movie, but I understand it's just horrendously racist. Is there a value? First, describe the movie. And then and, and anyone who wants to weigh in here can. Is there a value to looking at something that's just racist to a level that is (laughs) beyond.
1: (laughs) Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly um, our country's motion picture history had the great misfortune of D.W. Griffith's incredible talent as a visual storyteller because we know uh, The Birth of a Nation to be uh, the movie that Woodrow Wilson called Writing History with Lightning uh, when he screened it at the White House, I believe. Mm -hmm. So um, it does, uh, of course, perpetuate these negative stereotypes we alluded to earlier in our conversation and uh, uses a lot of white actors appearing in blackface um, and exaggerating The uh, kinds of the negative stereotypes that uh, have have been perpetuated about uh, African Americans since they were an enslaved people. Uh, Is it valuable to teach a film like uh, *The Birth of a Nation*? I don't personally teach it, um, but my film professor and mentor did and thought it was really important uh, to look at as sort of a historical artifact, much in the way maybe Spike Lee would use it uh, as a conversation starter about things that are problematic. Um, Beyond that, I I think Griffith's greatest shortcoming is not only does he grossly misread the, the room, he is himself a racist. And uh, and does not do himself any favors by, in in effect, um, promoting the Ku Klux Klan um, with you know through the imagery of they they ride to the rescue in one scene, right, Greg? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a you know there's so many um, you know moments within the film that uh, kind of etch uh, etch themselves into your into your memory, even if you've only seen it one time. Hmm. Uh, For example, you know. Rather than face the threat of uh, sexual assault, a young white woman throws herself off a cliff. And, um, you know, we, we sometimes we've all heard the phrase before, a fate worse than death. And uh, I, I read uh, an interesting book about the making of John Ford's The Searchers that talks about this concept in great detail from kind of an academic lens. What does it mean when we say a fate worse than death? It was the fear of miscegenation. It mm-hmm. was the fear of, you know, being assaulted, uh, not not being assaulted in and of itself, but being assaulted by uh, a person of a minority or what was perceived as an inferior um, ethnicity.
3: You know, and then we get to Gone with the Wind, Ashley, yeah. which is certainly an improvement on Birth of a Nation, um but you still have it it's a book written by a white woman from the south Margaret Mitchell and right in the opening you know title of the film you know this is a story about uh cavaliers and slaves and it's no more gone with the wind so it's almost romanticizing it it, it I mean it's a, it's a it's an entertaining film to watch the performances are great Vivian Lee Clark Gable, Hattie McDaniel wins the Academy Award as Mammy. And she's great in the movie, but Hattie McDaniel played maids. That's who she, you know, that's who she played back in those days. Um, so it's, it's a problematic film to watch now. Um, and it's, I, I, I'm, I'm always kind of torn on it, Greg and Sepo, because it's a, it's a very entertaining movie. Uh, Hattie McDaniel wins the Oscar versus three white actresses. But at the Oscar ceremony, she has to sit in the back. She doesn't, she doesn't even get to sit with David O. Selznick, Vivian Lee, Clark Gable, and she walks all the way from the back to get her award. And it, it's a key moment because she wins. Yeah. And then she famously doesn't get invited to the big premiere in Atlanta. And her friend Clark Gable, who was very conscious on that set of making sure that the black actors had the same bathroom facilities, uh, Gable really comes off well when you read about that movie. And he was threatening not to go to the premiere in Atlanta because his friend Hattie McDaniel wasn't invited. And she said, you know, Clark, you need to go. So it's kind of this double-edged sword. She wins the Oscar, but it's as a maid. Hmm. And it isn't until Sidney Poitier wins for Lilies of the Field in 1963 that we finally get this superstar actor winning in a performance that's not a servant and not a maid.
0: Hmm. Mm -hmm. That was the voice of Matt O'Lean. He is our film reviewer here at Prairie Public. We've also been in conversation with filmmaker Zippo Matalda and Dr. Gregory Carlson, director of the film studies program at Concordia College. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, having a roundtable discussion today for Black History Month. The theme of this year's Black History Month is Africans and the arts. In conversation today with Dr. Gregory Carlson from Concordia College, where he is the director of the film studies program. We also have Madeline, a Prairie Public Television producer and our film critic, and local filmmaker Zippo Matalda. You can find out more about her films at, and her, the rest of her art, including a great deal of music work at Xenafilms.net. And Zippo, I almost just called you (laughs) Xena. Just before the break, Matt was talking about Clark Gable on the set of Gone with the Wind. And I want to talk to you about this concept of white allies, because I think there's kind of two ways you can look at this. Like, Mm -hmm. do we really need to congratulate him for being just a nice guy, yeah. <laughs> or you know how do we look at it of you know was it that hard to stand up given the the culture at the time um I
2: definitely think there needs to be some credit given where to, where it's due. I feel like you know those. Are, when you have that influence and you can make an impact and you use it, mm. that's essentially what I think all people should do. And I think that, you know, a lot of people don't. Sometimes it's just fear. Sometimes, you know, they, you know, just being on the spot, you know, and standing up for something you believe is right when you have a lot of friends who don't support you mm. you know it's it's that fear of being the outlier i think that you know that you have to overcome as an individual no matter what ethnicity you are so i think that especially in that time frame when you literally could you know you could be blacklisted you could be you know just outcasted by you know people for speaking out about things in an, in an injustice in general mm. so i think that um I I personally think that credit should be given where it's
0: due. That's the way I would say it. (laughs) All right, I want to talk about a film here, Black Panther. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, First off, uh, Matt, give us, um, I mean, this was wildly popular, right? Remind us a little bit the premise of the movie and how popular it was, and then we can talk about why that was such a surprise.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Chadwick Boseman, uh, you know, this is his this is the movie about Black Panther. He's not part of the Avengers. This is the standalone movie. And Greg can touch on this, that when it was being made with a largely black cast, largely black production crew, uh, there were trolls out there who were like, this isn't going to work. You know, Thor's not in it. Captain America's not in it. Uh, And so, and it did work. It was phenomenally successful. So it's a huge, I think it's a huge touchstone moment for the director, Ryan Coogler. And the late Chadwick Boseman and everybody who was in it, Um, and it, you know, is up for best picture and wins Oscars. So I I think it's a a, a huge moment, and I know Zippo and Greg agree with that.
2: Oh, yes, most definitely.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm almost thinking, for me, it was almost a little like Barbie. People were all dressed up, and, and, and it was like Barbie. Were there moments like that for Black Panther?
2: Absolutely. I mean, it was viral. It was people going to the theater and, you know, carrying djembes and, you know, (laughs) wearing daishikis and Mm. they were (laughs) and dressing up. Maybe some of them identified more with like the Black Panther movement. Some people were dressed, you know, head to toe and all black, you know, and just representing, you know, their... Yeah, their background, their perspective. So it was what I felt was like a cultural movement. I saw it twice um, in the same weekend (laughs) with different groups of people. And it was just it was like I think that was the first time I went to the theater and had that moment where, you know, people talk about when they first saw, you know, like in the golden age when they would go and see a a movie and see like an orchestra playing or something on stage. You know, that moment where you have just like that real surreal, like, you know experience that's how I felt watching it yeah we were people were cheering <laughs> clapping in the theater it was gorgeous it was beautiful.
1: as a you know cultural artifact too we would say that a movie like Black Panther uh, crosses the 1.3 billion dollar box office threshold and so it's um, the the sort of the muscles of its ability to be to be marketed, uh, to all kinds of audiences can be seen through action figures, T-shirts, you know, the, the uh, corresponding record albums and all that, all that kind of kind of thing. And I think that's um, a positive takeaway from uh, something uh, so magnetically depicted through all the performers, but especially through Boseman's um, lead performance as mm. uh, T'Challa and. His untimely death, I think, cut short what might have been, and um, mm-hmm. you know, not just uh, in Black Panther, but you know, his his outsized talent and Coogler's outsized talent. Um, I remember seeing Fruitvale Station at the Fargo Theater, and being utterly captivated by this work and thinking, "There's, there's a we have to watch uh, what mm-hmm. this person is going to do next."
0: Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the movie Moonlight. Let's talk about the the cultural touchstone moments of that film, and because it did end up winning an Oscar. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I yeah think Matt it, well, should ahead, start go. with the you know the, the 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 sort of chaos that ensued <laughs> the night it actually <laughs> received Best Picture, because that has since become part of the conversation yeah. related to how its uh, its legacy is has been received.
3: Right. So Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway come out to present Best Picture because it's the fiftieth anniversary of. Bonnie and Clyde, a movie we've all, you know, grown up with and and I, I guess Beatty was handled, handed the wrong envelope and they initially say La La Land wins and the La La Land people come up and Damien Giselle had already got best director for La La Land. And then finally about a minute later, no no no, Moonlight wins and then Barry Jenkins comes <laughs> up. <laughs> so it was um I like that Moonlight and La La Land kinda split the picture director, but basically a huge touchstone moment because this film wins best picture with it's it's it, it's a film about the black experience for sure and i love the film i think it still holds up really well but interestingly enough zepo you had a, a slightly different reaction Yeah. we have have different, we have different black ethnic backgrounds about the black and you weren't <laughs> as wild about moonlight
2: yes yeah, so around the time especially like when when moonlight was released I heard so many good things about the film and just the level of, you know, the performance quality, you know, actress Janelle Monet and her portrayal and everyone in the film just, you know, having such excellent um, abilities and performances. And I personally, you know, I supported absolutely the entire film idea, the process, everything that they, you know, went through to create that film. I thought it was absolutely amazing. Um, what I drew what what I would I kind of stepped away from was just um, the story. I think for me, um, I just didn't it didn't resonate with me in a way that I, I felt like I wanted to necessarily embrace. Um, I just it made me very sad. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm I mean, my character is just not necessarily like'm I'm, I'm not somebody that tends to, you know, digest certain things well. And it was a little triggering for me. Um, I think just having known, you know, people who have experienced things um, maybe that might have been similar or even, you know, just, you know, my own struggles in my own life. I don't know. It just, it it, it wasn't necessarily something that I wanted to necessarily watch. Mm -hmm. Um, But absolutely, you know, I, again, credit, credit, credit to everybody in the cast, to everybody who, Worked on that production. It was, you know, it was beautiful to see them win the Oscar, and absolutely, it was actually crazy to see how it, you know, <laughs> all unfolded with the mis, mis, you know, the misunderstanding. Um, but yeah, I definitely vouch for everything that you guys feel about the film for sure.
1: Yeah, the story that Jenkins is trying to tell here is. Uh, I when I wrote about the film, I said it was, uh, it, it lived at the intersection of love and violence, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, you know, reading some of the other. Um, essays that had come out at the time, trying to unpack um, the various characters in the film. Uh, Mahershala Ali just t- took my breath away. Um, the and Naomi Harris and Naomi so Harris good is incredible the mother, in the film yep. too. And the you know, of course, the the kind of icon- now iconic image of um, Mahershala Ali's character cradling little in the ocean is just. It, it, it spoke—I had not seen something like that, and so mm-hmm. it, that's what spoke to me—one of the things that spoke to me about Moonlight.
0: We're coming up on the Oscars, Matt. Hmm. Not too long ago, there's been a Oscars so white hashtag. <laughs> there sure <laughs> was. How, how are we doing? I, well, uh,
3: Jeffrey Wright and um, uh, Coleman Domingo are both nominated for Best Actor this year, so that's great. I think Divine Joy Randolph's going to win the Supporting Actress Oscar. Greg and Zipo are nodding for The holdovers. one of my favorite movies of the year. Uh, Danielle Brooks, Color Purple, Supporting Actress nominee. Um, am I missing some here, Greg? Maybe a couple the performance more um, categories, for the performance I think. categories. performance categories, but but certainly it's it's getting better, and we've seen a lot of performers win Academy Awards. Uh, African American performers winning Academy Awards in the last you know forty years. You know, up until nineteen eighty two, it was Hattie McDaniel, Sidney Poitier, and Louis Gossett Jr. And then Denzel comes along, Morgan Freeman. I, I feel like that explosion happens mm-hmm. a little bit with them. Uh, and we start to get far more representation. But yeah, there's there was definitely a year or two in there where all of a sudden it was like all twenty of the acting performers were white. And and that, you know, I think the Academy has tried to address this, Greg, with sure. with more diversity in the voting members. They That's right. really got after that. And I think that we've seen we've seen some Some positive uh, things from that.
1: Yeah, I I I would just add in since we were doing just fact checking, seven of the twenty performance nominations are uh, done by people of color this year. So we didn't mention Lily Gladstone, uh, Lily Gladstone, and we didn't uh, mention America Ferrara. Yes, yes, Um, but that's you know these are these articles are being. This coverage happens at, at deadline, it happens at variety, it happens at the Hollywood Reporter. So as Matt's pointing out, this, you know, by by shining a light on the need for representation and greater and greater diversity, these incremental steps have have started to happen, even though it's probably too slow for you know for many people.
0: Hmm. Zippo, I want to talk to you about the theme of Black History Month being Africans in the arts. And then we also have this thing called Black Joy and, and Black Beauty. And, and one of the places that I most had to prominently check my racism was in reading a book by an Indigenous author. And she had written an essay about Thanksgiving. And it was very joy-filled. And I remember thinking... Shouldn't she not like Thanksgiving? <laughs> you know, right? Shouldn't she not be allowed to have the full human experience here? You know, here I am, well meaning white person, just supposed to be sad about the past. Mm-hmm. So, talk about this idea of let's celebrate joy for the sake of joy. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: actually an amazing question. Um, yes, I've had definitely in my own experience having friends, you know, be very critical of someone posting on social media happy thanksgiving you know or you know Mm -hmm. even if we're not talking about thanksgiving just you know as a native american person you know are you allowed to enjoy something that again was historically connected to the decimation of an entire people um i feel as if you know we we tend to want to live in a space where we're always fact checking, fact checking, fact checking, and that's great. But at the same time, I do think there's a there's room for people to be able to indulge in you know joy, positivity, and 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 really have you know the a broad you know perspective of who they are and be able to be dynamic and you know it's just it's 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 difficult to kind of be boxed in in. And need to be, you know, the expert or need to be, <laughs> you know, the, you know, uh, politically correct, you know, even as a person of color, having to always be <laughs> politically correct. I think there's, you know, there's a uh, it, it, it leans itself towards the woke movement, I think. Mm. I think there's there's this thing where, you know, especially for millennials, where wokeism has become, you know, this this our movement, our thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like there for me for a movement. I think there needs to be, you know, there needs to be clear goals. There needs to be clear. (laughs) There needs to be just like, you know, direction. There needs to be moderation. There needs to be, you know, everything in moderation is, is my perspective. So I think that, you know, we need to just maybe soften our approach to you know, our everyday, you know, lives in terms of like celebrating a holiday, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like, you know, trying to, I guess, put it on, you know, blast and, and make everybody have to adhere to, you know, being correct. I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough, but I think there's room, you know, there's room for people to just be people and just be able to enjoy something without,
0: (laughs) Yeah, Greg, how do you talk to your students about diversity when you're teaching?
1: Sure. That's, uh, you know, as higher education from coast to coast has, you know, taken, we'll say, steps forward with related to what are often referred to as DEI or diversity, equity and inclusion measures and then received pushback politically from, you know, people who have, you know, used legislative measures to try to prevent what some people would, would call the teaching of history, just factual, you know, fact-based history itself. Um, you know, we, we saw the outrageous case in Florida within the last month of banning thesaurus and dictionary tools for students to use because certain words, uh, might be perceived as, um, you know, too, uh, leaning in one particular political direction too much. So I, you know, I have, I, I, We talked about Spike Lee earlier. I had an opportunity to teach uh, an honors level class on Spike Lee, and I've seen all of his films. Um, I'm not a person of color. So I questioned whether that was an appropriate space for me to work. Um, And so I did spend a fair amount of time with the students at the beginning of the semester addressing that very question, is how do we... Work through um, seeing films uh, that represent different aspects of our, you know, of our history and our and ourselves that may or may not align with our own demographics, and uh, and so I think it's you know it's important to try to do some perspective taking, you know, to try to, um, you know, imagine if not not to imagine yourself as uh, you know in necessarily in the shoes of the character, although I think in a good narrative film you uh, you are able to identify with people uh, that you would not necessarily think of identifying with uh, outside of the realm of, of great fiction
0: hmm. Zippo, how do you find making films in this area how has the film community has the support for it can you get funding <laughs>
2: um yeah so it's a it's a challenge our biggest hurdle at this time during our current production um, of pretty the musical is. Um, just getting a diverse cast Um, and even whether it's film or theater you know there's this conversation happening you know where we we want to be able to encourage people you know of diverse backgrounds to apply for something or to audition for something but at the same time you want to make sure you're not necessarily like you know, just throwing it out there like, hey, we needed this birth that fits this description that looks like this. That, you know, you want to give people yeah. some room to just be human, I think. <laughs> but, but but at the same time, acknowledge that we do have a, a have less um I guess, diversity in this area. So I think that's our biggest struggle. Um, Aside from that, um, funding-wise, we're looking into grants. We are up working towards the Minnesota Arts Experiences Grant. (laughs) Um, And also, there was a um, recent controversy about a grant that the North Dakota, I think, um, some council or something gave (laughs) a film grant for um, producers in North Dakota. And there was a huge controversy because it went to one production studio it was like six hundred thousand dollars or something. Um, I don't have all the details on that, but well, I
3: think others weren't given enough time to apply. Wasn't that it? I think something it something along like those lines. that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: I felt like that. You know, those are things where, again, I think the state. You know, if you're going to give funding to filmmakers, I think you've got to promote it. Because I heard about that the day that it was being awarded.
3: It was not. <laughs> well, it was not well promoted. That is. <laughs> I under, was like, understatement. Wait, <laughs>
2: <laughs> So yeah, definitely. That those are some of the obstacles. You
0: know. Yeah. Well, we just have a couple minutes left here. So who are you watching for the future of black representation uh, on film? And I'll let all of you answer. Um, I would say I'm watching Jordan Peele, mm-hmm.
2: um, Ava DuVernay. I'm watching people, you know, who are really taking that whole uh, narrative of the black experience and taking it in a whole new direction, giving us fantasy, giving us horror, giving us comedy, you know, just giving us, you know, a breath of perspective on that entire, you know, genre and just, you know, challenging, you know, filmmaking approaches and incorporating different things into their films that, you know, just create just the creativity that they're bringing to the table, um, especially with the movie Get Out. Um, I think that was the most recent one where I, I really like read, you know, about the process behind that the, that film being made. And I just, you know, reveled in all of the, the little um, things that they did and um, to, I guess, make um, statements, you know, even down to the cl- the color of the clothing that they were wearing, mm. you know, something about, <laughs> it, it, you know, I could get into it, but it was just, you know, very, very cool the way they approached that film. So that's what I'm looking at.
3: Yeah, she kind of, you kind of took the words right out of my mouth with Jordan Peele. I mean, he's, uh, he's a phenomenal filmmaker and screenwriter, and I'm, I'm excited to see where that goes. Uh, actors like Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield as well, and actresses like Danielle Brooks, who was just on PBS is Finding Your Roots. Henry Louis Gates. He was amazing on that. Uh, yeah, just kind of seeing where this with swallow take us, and and uh, and doing all genres. You know, we were talking about American fiction. There's not a there's not a, a black genre. I mean, Jordan Peele is a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Ryan Coogler is a filmmaker, and all kinds of genres can be covered by that. You're not you're not pigeonholed. I think that's crucial. I think now.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, I echo what uh, my two fellow panelists have have shared. I I love uh, watching the dynamic and exciting work of up-and-comers like Taylor Page, one of my favorite current performers who is going to have a breakout role at some point and could very well be a future Oscar nominee. Mm -hmm. I love Tessa Thompson. Um, In the nonfiction space, um, I really have been drawn to W. Kamau Bell's work. Um, We Need to Talk About Cosby. Uh, they premiered a few of the uh, episodes of it at Sundance a couple years ago, and I, it left me speechless as a as a person who had grown up watching the Cosby mm-hmm. Show. Bell is able to do something really special in his filmmaking, and that is to uh, not discard the the. the the nostalgia and the importance that the art might have had, even if the artist in this case turned out to be monstrous. Bell's uh, latest film is called Growing Up Mixed, and it's a documentary that starts with uh, his own family, and I would highly recommend it.
0: That was Dr. Gregory Carlson, Director of the Film Studies Program at Concordia College. Greg, thanks for your time today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: We've also been in conversation with Prairie Public Movie Reviewer Madeline. Matt, thank you.
1: Of course, Ashley.
0: And filmmaker Zippo Matalda. You can find out more about her films and her music at xenafilms.net. Zippo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Dakota Datebook is next.
4: This is Dakota Datebook for February 20th. On this date, in 1910, the Bismarck Tribune reported on the expansion of the Bismarck Bottling Works, a popular bottling company. The company's sodas had grown in popularity, allowing the company to open another factory in Mandan by early spring. This was not, however, the first Bismarck Bottling Company. Years before, in 1876, Charlie Williams moved to Bismarck and opened a saloon. By 1882, he opened the first Bismarck Bottling Works, a part of C.R. Williamson Company. It became the wholesaler for Philip Best of Milwaukee, a prominent beer company that had been around since the 1840s. The beer gained popularity not only in Bismarck, but also in Jamestown, Moorhead, and other towns in the region. Williams produced beer for the Best Company until at least 1884 at his facility on the south side of Bismarck. For several years, newspaper ads sang the praises of Williams and his beer. But in 1885, the ads disappear, making it clear that Williams no longer carried the Phillips Best brand. However, that same year, Williams bought the Baker and Gooding pop bottling plant, which he operated until leaving Bismarck in late 1889. This movement out of North Dakota by Williams and other beer and alcohol businesses coincides with statehood, As voters approved a prohibition measure in the new state's constitution, Williams and his peers would be out of business. It was the beginning of a period of inactivity for bottling companies in Bismarck that lasted until 1900. That year, a soda bottling plant was opened. In 1905, it was sold to Julius Sell, who renamed the plant Capital City Bottling Works. A couple of years later, Cells manager Frank Murphy left the company to open his own bottling company, which carried a similar name, the Bismarck Bottling Works, which operated into the 1930s. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Olivia Burmeister. I'm Merrill Pepcorn.
0: Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding from Humanities North Dakota.